Good morning, church. Nice to be with you here this Sunday after Easter to start a new series, Chosen by God. Uh, just a moment before we pray and begin, just really a celebration. Uh, I want to say thanks for two things. One, thank you to those that showed up and volunteered last week on Easter. It was such an encouragement for the staff on Monday of last week to have the 100 volunteers they needed. So thank you so much. And because of all of your hard work, we were able to greet over 1,000 people on Sunday, which we were so excited for. There was almost 1,050 people between all three services. And that really is a, a, uh, a declaration that God is doing a, a big work in our community. So thanks for coming, for bringing friends, and for volunteering. And if you came last week for the first time, thank you for coming back this Sunday. Last week was a big week. It was the biggest Sunday in the history of 103 years of this church. And um, just really exciting to see almost 6,000 people between all six locations. Uh, if you're new to Bethany, you may know that, or may not know, but uh, we just started our locations other than Green Lake seven years ago with North and West. And so we had almost 2,500 people worship in places other than at Green Lake. And then at the Green Lake location, they also had just a huge, huge morning of worship. And so God is clearly on the move. Lots of people are hungry for more of his transformation. Excited to start this series today called Chosen by God as we look at women in the Bible. Uh, we're going to be studying the Bible and looking at six different portraits over the next six weeks of women and men uh, who have displayed obedience to God's call across the gender and really highlighting uh, people, women in particular, I guess, uh, that God just uses for other people's transformation. Really excited. So let me pray and we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for a chance to proclaim your word this morning. We thank you for your call to men and women throughout the scriptures. We thank you for this example this morning of these two brave women who chose to follow you, God, even though it came at a risk of their own life. And we thank you that from these brave women, the exodus followed. Thank you that as we follow you, God, you're doing a new work. And thank you for the work you're doing in the women of our, of our community and the women of our church. Uh, may this series honor you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. The title today is called Courageous Resistance. As we look at Exodus 1, Courageous Resistance. Two women in Egypt teach obedience becomes worship. Their obedience becomes worship. Pretty incredible. Um, one of the things that uh, just this week, just culturally significant, was the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination as the nation grieved 50 years ago. When I was uh, traveling around the nation, when I got out of college, I bought a bus, or a van rather, and and just drove around the country. And it was particularly educational for me, a guy from the West Coast, to uh, spend some time in the southern parts of our state. I just had never been to the south. I I didn't realize uh, the parts of America that um, just had still much to teach me, and the fact that there was much transformation yet to occur When I was in Memphis, I went to the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated 50 years ago, and uh, it was was interesting, it was humbling, it was sad, and after spending some time walking around there, I walked around the corner of a street and literally walked smack dab into the middle of a rally of a sort that I'd never seen before. It was a rally of the Ku Klux Klan, and there were several hundred Ku Klux Klansmen that were uh, were protesting um, civil rights. And, um, and they had the right to, to march and to, um, to, to gather. Uh, there was much hatred being spewed. And, and as I was watching this, then a counter-protest started, and several hundred people, predominantly African-American, that were protesting the protest. And I'm sitting here, kind of dumbfounded, this 22-year-old from the West Coast, watching all this unfold. And though we like to think that we're on this upward trajectory of progress... Uh, 
clearly, as a society, we have much further to go. And this is not an indication of a different part of the geography of the United States. Because one of the things that I've been on a learning curve, even in these last couple of years, is how much even in this state, in this city, and in our own neighborhoods, racism was happening, is happening, and continues to happen. And so when we look at the legacy of Dr. King, when we look at the legacy of Scripture about, you know, God's teaching about equality between men and women, we have this, this kind of warning that we're not nearly as good as we'd like to believe. And in the last year, our brokenness with gender and sexuality and, and women in particular being distorted by our culture, it's been revealed. It's been revealed against a conservative mindset. It's been revealed against a liberal mindset in the Me Too movement. And just how much discrimination our women have endured and continue to endure. And so as a church, we ask this question, what is God's desire for half of his people chosen by God? God wants you to know as women in his congregation, you are chosen by God. God wants to teach the men of our congregation that that women are chosen by God. And so this series is our attempt to kind of speak into the fact that many churches like Bethany believe that women are indeed chosen by God, called by God, are gifted by God, different but equal, have gifts to teach and shape and admonish that God, that, you know, but where do we get that? That's not just trying us to be culturally relevant. It comes from the scriptures. And clearly in the Old Testament, the, the, the era was a patriarchy. And so women often suffered at the hands of men. And yet even then, God was speaking in the Old Testament through women like Shipra and Pua. And in the New Testament, we'll study some New Testament characters. How much did Jesus Christ speak through women, lead through women, church planted by women, the first church in Europe, and, and the, the women who came to the empty tomb to, to profess that Christ is not there, to receive that proclamation. It was women on Easter morning that received that. And so this isn't necessarily, you know, women-centric at the cost of men, but it's this awakening in the scriptures that God longs to teach through women and men. And we have these two kind of minor characters this morning to teach us this massive principle. The midwives of Exodus 1 is this reality that God used women in the book of Exodus to set the stage for God's massive delivery to freedom called the Exodus. And so our big idea is this, that the beautiful story of courage in Exodus 1, we see God's heart, uh, have these two minor midwives have this incredible capacity to honor God and reveal in small decisions of obedience and resistance can have massive repercussions for the people of God. These two teach us that obedience becomes worship. And in this way, this is more than a message even about gender, it's, it's a message about obedience to what God wants to do in our lives. Yes, we proclaim Easter joyously last Sunday, and now in the post-Easter reality, we get to say, God, what do you want to change in me that your obedience would help me be a person standing with the most vulnerable in our society? Let's look first at this first point of our outline. These women, who were they contextually? They were women who feared God. We, we get the, the story in Exodus 1 about the nation of Israel growing and flourishing and persecution happening. And then in verse 15, the king gives these two women, Shipra and Pua, this edict. When you're helping the Hebrew women on the delivery stool was their delivery method. If you see the baby's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. And the midwives, however, they feared God. And they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. 
such simple language, such profound repercussions. The Pharaoh was calling for a genocide as an assimilation tactic. He was calling for a genocide against every Hebrew boy, then thinking the Hebrew women would get married into their culture. And it's this decree of hatred and and of genocide. And it reveals the bias and discrimination towards the Jews. This had happened since the beginning. Remember, Jacob, his son Joseph, had gone to Egypt. He'd been a slave in Egypt. Beautiful story at the end of Genesis about Joseph had even gone to Egypt and how, you know, how man had tried to subvert uh, Joseph and, and yet God used him in his brokenness and in his jail sentence and raised him up. And then from that place in Egypt, God's people were provided for. And, and so we get this, this verse that, that, that Joseph was allowed to bring his dad and his brothers and the rest of the, the Israel nation, they, they were given permission by Pharaoh. Genesis 46, you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. What's going on here? So as the nation of Israel is, is it's, it's, it's uh, you know, total abomination and, and hunger in Israel. And so they go down to Egypt and they're provided for in Goshen, outside of the, of the city, Outside of the cultural kind of powerhouses of Egypt, the, the Israelites are allowed to live because they have animals. And we learn there in Genesis 46 that the animals, the, the shepherds, that Israel, or the Egyptians want nothing to do with them. The Jews were known to be dirty. Amazing. And from this simple little, you know, kind of like, oh, the Jews are dirty. And, and, and as they grow, what happens here in time is simple discrimination becomes massive genocide. simple discrimination. Oh, you know, it's just the odd joke about the Jews being shepherd people and and dirty. What happens here is Pharaoh takes that and it grows and hatred grows and then a genocide is decreed. And this is a warning because sometimes, you know, we hear this when people use sexist jokes, when people use racial discrimination and stereotypes. People say, you know, what's the big deal? You know, it's just a joke that was forward to me. I, I thought it was funny, or I didn't even think it was funny, but I didn't want to, you know, make the person that sent it feel awkward, and so we just pass these things on. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Here in Exodus 1, the big deal is simple discrimination becomes a genocide. And so the warning to God's people is, it, it is a big deal. That we're called as God's people to root out when we see sexism happening, when we see gender bias happening. When we see discrimination against any skin tone or color happening, we're called to root it out. Not because we're perfect, but we, we don't want to be part of passing down these biases. What's not healed is handed down. And so it often looks like just a little bit of discrimination, just a little bit of a, of a, a joke, just a little bit, you know, and God says, enough. It's not how I created you. You were made in my image, says God. Men and women, white and brown, every skin tone, every, every, everyone, you're, you're made in my image. And I want my church, says God, to be speaking this goodness of God's creation into all the world. I need the church to be, to be passing that on. And so from this, from this simple discrimination becomes genocide, and these two women, Shipra and Pua, are given the, the order to kill every Hebrew male. There's much we don't know about these women. We don't know a lot about them. So, some scholars say that their names are actually Egyptian and speculate they were Egyptian women that were leaders of the midwives of Israel. Uh, other scholars say, no, no, they're, they're Hebrew women that somehow get an audience with Pharaoh. They're clearly leaders of other midwives, or else a, a simple decree of two women wouldn't be able to make that big an impact into the nation of Israel. There's lots we don't know, but here's what we do know. 
that these women were given a choice to choose between the God of Yahweh and, and the little g God, Pharaoh. And they were called to obey little g Pharaoh, the God of the land, and they don't do it. Why? Because they have a fear of God. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God. And we see it at the end of the passage. In verse 21, they feared God. Now, this is interesting because we're taught here through these women that a healthy fear of God becomes obedience. And their obedience becomes worship and God honors it and leads them on the Exodus journey. But fear, you know, where there's this, you know, I, th- I thought 1 John, remember 1 John says perfect love drives out fear. I thought we're not supposed to fear God. That's kind of an old mindset that we're supposed to have just a relationship with God. But I need to give you some working definition. In the Old Testament, fear is less about shame or punishment, and it's more about reverence and respect. And when the scriptures say that, that, that we're called to fear God, it's saying that, you know, I want to honor God, that I'm called to obey God. And, and of course, we're not meant to be afraid of God. Now, in both Matthew and Luke, when the angels come, there's, there's, there's fear, but it's more of just afraid that's making humans cower. And the angels speak out, do not be afraid, is the voice throughout the Old Testament. Do not be afraid. So we're called not to be afraid of God, which just makes us feel small, but we're called to have this fear of God, a reverence and an obedience, that our obedience leads to repentance, that our obedience is changing us, that our obedience, yes, there's nothing I can do to earn myself the salvation that God has given, but it's a fear of God saying, God, make me more like you. I I celebrate Easter morning, I'm in, there's donut holes, it's a glorious day, and I wake up Monday morning and I realize I'm still a mess. Yeah, Easter came, my salvation's intact, I know that at the end of my life I'll be face to face with Jesus, but I want more of that resurrection power in the here and now, and this is where we're called to have this obedience from awe and wonder. Psalm 112, blessed is the one who fears the Lord. And so these women, they're midwives, which means to be with women. And now the God of the land, the little G God of Pharaoh, telling them to destroy life. And so they have this courage. How do they have courage to do the right thing here? They are connected to God. And if you want courage, if you want inspiration, the, the, the message for us today, church, is to connect deeply to Christ. And that for all of God's people, men and women, God longs for us to have a healthy fear and awe and wonder and obedience. That God lifts us up as his people and desires and obedience. And this is where obedience between men and women, it destroys patriarchy. It just says that old way of thinking that men are in power and women are called to just, you know, you know suffer under the hands of men. It's destroyed at the foot of the cross. Because men and women stand at the foot of the cross saying, Lord Jesus, we need total salvation from you. And so the patriarchy is destroyed in the new order, being post-Easter Christians, saying, Lord, may, may we be equal before your cross, men and women. And we still have a long way to go. Like that, 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 that walking in Memphis and coming you know, from the Lorraine Motel to the KKK rally. We have a long way to go between men and women in our culture today. We see in the news, we see in the media, we see women being discriminated. We know this from our own stories. We know how many of our sisters in our own room this morning have, been, have suffered at the hands of males in our culture. Have suffered at times from the church of discrimination. It's not okay. It's not okay. I, I learned this firsthand as, as a dad when... We found out that after a long season of, of infertility that we were going to be parents. We were literally so happy we cried. 
I, I, it's a different story, but there was a, there was a pregnancy stick that was positive. I mean, we were weeping with joy. Several months later, the ultrasound revealed to our great delight we were going to have a little girl. We couldn't have been more blessed. We couldn't have been more excited. There was not a, any kind of letdown at the, the gender of our first child. And yet as we started to tell friends and family about, oh, you know, we're having a little girl, we had someone just say the most ignorant thing to me. Oh, I bet you were hoping for a boy, right? No, no, sir. I was not hoping for a boy. I am so pleased and, and feel just so honored to bring life into this world, male or female, equal before the cross. And if we think that attitude is merely outside the walls of the church, we're mistaken. God wants to tear down the walls of patriarchy as he teaches us through the scriptures that God uses men and women for his glory. He uses these women, if you look at the second point of your outline, to have this courageous disobedience. The, the, the Pharaoh of the land tells them to kill. They won't do us. The, the courage, the, they're, they're courageous. Look at verse 18 and 19. The king summoned them after they didn't kill them and said, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Most scholars said these midwives would have been teenagers themselves. Two teenage, likely Hebrew young women summoned to the king of the land they lived in. And in the, before the king of the land, they have the audacity to speak. Verse 19, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And I love that as Heather read this this morning, there was laughter in the room because it is funny. They outwitted the king of Egypt. They are wise. They are smart. They are savvy. They are not being disrespectful. They give an, an answer that obviously works. Their lives were spared. And they were able to use wisdom to outwit the little G-God of the land to do the right thing. Because when we do the right thing, when we're courageously disobedient, God will be with us. Now, if you look at devotionally in the week ahead of Exodus 1, you see that, that Israel came, the nation of Israel, Jacob's family, the sons, they moved to Egypt. They have very little, but they're growing, and they're growing. And, and as Pharaoh sees them, it's a new Pharaoh that didn't have a relationship with Joseph. So he's, re, he's reigning over them and ruling them, and, and he's a slave master and a taskmaster. And so these Israelites are now, they're literally slaves. They didn't go as slaves, but they're being discriminated from the pasture lands of Goshen. They become slaves. And the more they grow, the more more obstacles they face. The more they prosper, the more slavery they endure. And in the midst of this is a message for us because in their growing power came persecution. But sometimes when we're persecuted, it means God is growing you. So take heart. When you face struggles, when you face, you know, not always, sometimes you're just being a jerk and God's like, you know, you need to change and just kind of soften your heart. But if you examine your heart, if you get counsel from the scriptures and people that you trust to say, you know, I think you're in the right here and you're making good decisions and the persecution comes in the workplace, this is very common, or in our neighborhoods or in relationships, when we face persecution, we can want to give up. And God's speaking to the, through Shipra and Pua this morning that as, as you face persecution, it might might mean that that's when God is saying, I'm growing you. I'm growing something in you. Take heart. I'm not done with you. I want to do a new work in you. And so don't obey the, the, the persecutors. Trust me, says God. We have this question that comes through the Bible to us is, is it better to obey God or man? In Acts 5, Peter and the early church had to face this in very realistic ways. They were told, don't preach the gospel of Christ. In Acts 5, it says, Peter and the other apostles reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. 
And so these women in Exodus 1 were given an order to kill and exterminate human life. And they won't do it. Because they know that though the Pharaoh is, is going to you know, possibly give them you know, persecution, they don't want to step outside of God's story. And so when you face obstacles and, and roadblocks in your life, pray over God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Know that God honors human life. That babies are divine in Exodus 1. People say, well, is that a political statement for today? It's in the Bible. In Exodus 1, God says, do not exterminate the most vulnerable in your society. And we, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be countercultural? It means we welcome the widow. It means we love the homeless and the addicted. Those are hard decisions to make. It also means we welcome the refugee. It also means we advocate for the unborn. It means that, that our faith is not driven by left or right, conservative or liberal, but that as believers in God, we're trying to do the right thing to honor the values that the scriptures teach us of what God's own heart. And so here in Exodus 1, the midwives are like, no, we'll choose life courageously, even if it means that we will suffer on our own. It's amazing. From the small seedlings of disobedience displayed by these two women, the exodus of all God's people is dawning. They weren't given, do you want to lead the exodus? Do you want to change Pharaoh's mind? They weren't given that. They were just given an order and they had the small individual decision, do I do the right thing today or not? And they are recorded in scripture of making a massive impact to the nation of Israel. They make a massive impact to God himself. How? In the, in the particular of the day, they follow and they fear God. And this is what we all want, right? That our life has value. That our life has an impact. That we're more than just a, a slave to the day or just a slave to the man or just trying to kind of, you know, get through life. No, we want our life to have impact. How do we do that we make small everyday decisions to honor life and to proclaim Christ and how we love people with our actions. And then we trust Christ as the aggregate of those decisions. We don't get to write the end of our story. We're just given today. And so we pray, church, this would be a moment of application. Lord, teach me obedience to love others well. Because every theology issue is first and foremost a relational issue. So we're called to love God and love others, and our theology flows from these principles. These women have this, this, this fear of God that leads to awe and worship and allows them to do the right thing. And their faith is counteracting the gods of their society. Be very wary, church, when our faith is not coming into contact and conflict with the gods of our society. Historically, when people have a privatized faith that's not counteracting the gods of society, things don't go well. In Rwanda, they had this god of tribalism, and so people would go to church in the morning and then genocide by the evening. Millions and millions of people slaughtered, mostly by churchgoers, that their faith wasn't counteracting the, this god of tribalism. In Germany, same thing, church by morning and holocaust by evening because there was a god of nationalism. And so what god of today is, is the gospel calling you to, to encounter to not just go to church, but that these scriptures would live in you and you would have a countercultural call to make your life count. There's this amazing text in Luke 4 where there's a man possessed. It's one of Jesus' first miracles. This man is possessed. Jesus comes to Capernaum. He goes to the church and the man is one of the church dwellers. And a demon is possessing the man who's a churchgoer. It's amazing. 
There's this warning that you can go to church your whole life and not encounter Jesus. This demon is inside the man. The man's inside the church. They've somehow coexisted for quite some time. But when Jesus comes to town, the demon says, go away. And Jesus looks at him and says, come out of here. Leave that man alone. The churchgoer in the church service was not encountering Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he's forced to counteract a false god. Your faith in Christ as it lives in you, it empowers you to make an impact with your actions. This week we celebrated the commemorated, grieved, mourned the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And though we've made King a national holiday, and you know, in January of every year we post memes of speeches and face, that the work continues. We're not, fear, we're not as far along as we'd like to believe. There was this opinion piece by Jesse Jackson in the New York Times this week that was really indicting. Jackson writes that America loathes marchers but loves a martyr. And so, Jackson writes, the bullet in Memphis made Dr. King a martyr for the ages. We owe it to Dr. King and to our children and our grandchildren to commemorate the man in full. Not a watered-down version in January of every year. No, the man of Dr. King in full, a radical, ecumenical, anti-war, pro-immigrant, scholarly champion of the poor, a preacher of the gospel who spent much more time marching and going to jail for liberation and justice than he ever spent just dreaming about it. And so on the sermon that he gave on the night before he was assassinated, because he was a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else, King, King said this. He says, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. That that would be our prayer, church. Not King's words, but God's words. That, that we just want to do God's will in our life. That we, that we would courageously do God's will. And they killed him. We know that King loved to use this verse from Amos. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I've been to the Civil Rights Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, where this, this, is, the, this is the verse. That, that, that you go to King's legacy to celebrate his life, and it's the words of Scripture that uplifted. We love that. But do you know the reality of Amos 5? It was, it was words given from God to counteract people who were religious but not acting for the vulnerable. Can I read you the rest of Amos 5? God says to the prophet Amos, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I hate, I despise your assemblies. They're a stench to me, says God. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, you're doing the things of religion, I'll not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I'll not listen to your music anymore. This is an ouch moment for those of us that call ourselves Christians. Because God calls us to not just show up to church or to do the, you know, the veneer of spirituality, but that his gospel would be transforming us to be people courageously standing with the most marginalized in our society. You know, we've got this racial reconciliation and justice. We've got an initiative. I'm the leader church-wide. There's book groups and there's study groups in all six locations, but we're scratching our heads. How do we actually move the needle in the city of Seattle? We give 10% of our gross offerings to international mission partners and to, to missionaries, people doing the work of the gospel. This church has, has partners in Rwanda and, and uh, Costa Rica and Nicaragua. But what does that mean for any of us? We're so separated from the work over there. And how does that work flow back into our lives here? I'm leading a team of three people from North and some from Green Lake to say, we've got to do more to be people of justice in Nicaragua, but that that hope would come back here. 
We have a strip club that was a strip club and seized by the government and we transformed it and made it a coffee shop. And now the coffee shop is rented by one cup coffee and they pay the church rent. And then the church buys lunch for high school students served by Young Life leaders to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church does breakfast down at the methadone clinic because the city of Shoreline said, if you could serve breakfast at the methadone clinic, you'll be really partnering to, 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 to work together. It's good, but it needs to go bigger. Like in our lives, how are we people of disobedience to the gods of our world and obedience to God that our life looks different? This is the third point he outlined. These women had this solidarity with the vulnerable. They have a solidarity with the vulnerable. They choose life through their actions. They said, we're going to make our lives count. Now what's really interesting is that many scholars believe that midwives in ancient Egypt... Of the, of the Jewish midwives, they were probably women who were not able to bring life in of themselves. They were either single or they were barren women. And so in a culture of the Jewish people, to, for a woman to be a mother was really an honored position. And so scholars think that midwives were given the role of helping other women bring life in as a way to be established among women, established in the sisterhood, the sorority of women having power in Egypt. So These midwives were probably women not able to have babies of their own, and yet they did the right thing. And this amazing testimony comes to us in verse 20 and 21. God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became numerous. And because the midwives feared God, because they obeyed God with their lives, because they had awe and worship and wonder to God himself, God gave them families of their own. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Because if you've never struggled with infertility, if you've never walked with people struggling with infertility, you have no idea how painful it is. And God establishes them. And I know there's a warning here if you're struggling with infertility of like, yeah, but why didn't he establish me? And I I don't know that, church. But I do see in here a promise that if we obey God, he will bring fruit to our lives. He'll bring joy to our lives. And you can read the scriptures from front to back and you'll be hard-pressed to find Bible people who don't struggle and need transformation. Any human in the Bible, other than Jesus, who is God himself, they all struggle at times. So we read the scriptures. It's not a map of how to be perfect. David was God's own, you know, after God's own heart, they said, and he was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah knew God and spoke courageously and he had fear. Jonah ran out to Nineveh when God, I mean, read God's favorite people. They're real like us. They'll fail like us. So the scriptures don't give us some map of people that do it perfectly, but the scriptures show us that when we obey God with our lives, that God honors and establishes us. And so if you need hope this morning, if you need God to do something in your life specifically, I want to encourage you, church, the answer is more obedience more time in his scripture, more time that your actions are aligned with your heart that's been fully, fully saved by the cross. You don't earn anything, but then you get to spend your life saying, God, I want my life to be beautiful to you. Change me. Make me more like you. I can't do this on my own. Or as Paul says in the New Testament, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I'm unable to do the things I do want to do. So how do I live more intentionally that my life looks more like who Christ is calling me to be? In Exodus 1, through Shipra and Pua, we have this encouragement. It's solidarity of the vulnerable. 
It's saying, you know, I want my life to count, and so I'm going to care for the unborn. I'm going to care for the refugee. I'm going to care for the homeless. I'm going to care for the hungry. I'm going to care for the children in my own home or in my neighborhood. In a world where people in the margins not care for, God wants us in solidarity and action. Because the ethic of Christ was standing with the marginalized. Anyone who is vulnerable, Christ said, I'll stand with you. And so Pharaoh sees this. And he condemns the Hebrews to, at the end of the passage, die in the river. But the irony is, this is, this is the same river that miracles will flow in just a little bit that will lead towards Moses leading God's people to safety and to salvation through the Exodus. And so today we get this beautiful story where the deliverers of the baby help deliver Israel's deliverer. Moses wouldn't be here if these two women didn't obey God courageously. And so for God's sake, don't fight hate with more hate. Courageously choose love and stand with the marginalized. And if you find yourself today or in this series struggling with like, oh, you know, I I made this past decision. I I, I did something in my past that I, I horribly regret that's not in line with the scripture's value of life. Or I've seen something, or I've done something, I've spoken out in hatred, I've judged people by their skin tone, by by their sexuality, I've got skeletons in my closet. The Lord God is coming to you this morning and saying, receive his mercy, and then go forward and change. I I shared this this quote at the end of the the Easter message by C.S. Lewis, that you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Something happened with that inspirational little quote. It got shared over 15 times. Over 2,000 people said yes, because that resonates. Every one of us has skeletons in our closet, but every one of us, God is saying, I want to use you from this place forward and to be people of justice and mercy, speaking out for women and men in our culture, saying stand with the, the most vulnerable. But it's difficult because that's gonna call us not just to judge the politic of the other, but to do analysis of our own heart. Because God, before he cares what we do out here, he wants to change in here. This story about women saving lives, to me, in in my own personal life, has come to mean a great deal. A great deal. Because people that I know and love could have been aborted if someone had made a different decision in their life. But somebody did the courageous thing and delivered and adopted and someone else courageously brought adopted children into the home. And when I was speaking to people that were involved in the process about, you know, why why is it so hard to get to the truth about all this? This this one man said this thing that I'll never forget. He said, you know, the fact of the matter is I liked going to church each week and people looking at me as if I had everything put together. It's easier, church, to phone it in. It's easier to come with a problem of, you know, a different society, a different politic, a different, no, but the scriptures are calling us, begging us to have our hearts aligned in faith, that each and every one of us say, Lord Jesus, make me more like you. Deliver me from places where I've been a slave. Help me courageously resist the pharaohs of the land. God, I'm no longer a slave because of what someone else says I am. God, will you, will you teach me who you say I am? I'm no longer a slave of someone else's sexual fantasy. I'm no longer a slave to a second-tier person. Lord, lead us to obedience and worship. And the beauty of this story from Exodus, keep reading. They, they will receive freedom. 
That God's people have been slaved and been tortured, but God will lead them to new places of freedom and intimacy. He's moving us still. He's not done with us. The Exodus journey is our story where God's saying, do not be stuck in places of discrimination and sexuality where people are being just charged against. Step into new places of freedom where your faith is making you alive in Christ. No longer a slave. God's spirit living in us. Being liberators, people on fire for Christ's glory in our community. Amen? Let me say a prayer and wrap us up. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning, the reminder of who you say we are. We thank you for that strong word of encouragement to some in the room this morning that just need to be reminded that despite their gender, despite whatever they've been discriminated in anything in their past, Lord, that you say that we are your children. You say, Lord, that you're leading us to freedom. Lord, you say that we're fully redeemed at the foot of your cross. And so, Lord God, we pray for the ability to hear your voice speaking to us this morning. We pray that you would drown out and, and, and just, just silence those other voices of discrimination in our culture. Lord God, allow your church to take up the mantle of being peacemakers and people speaking out for the gospel of Christ that is reconciling different skin tones and men and women, not to be culturally relevant or politically savvy, but to be witnesses of your gospel alive in us. And so, Lord God, we are praying and begging this morning that you would do a new work in our lives. Take us from places of slavery to places of freedom. Lord God, we pray that you would do a new and powerful work, waking the church up for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. This is Communion Sunday. So of any Sunday that's special, this feels like a good one. Here, this first Sunday after Easter. And when we celebrate communion as a church, we don't come as the perfect ones. We come as the forgiven ones. And so we have gluten-free bread and juice and the instructions. And we'll just move clockwise through each section down here to the front. And we have two service stations on the side. Communion is open to anyone that wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Anyone willing to do that work of examination. Lord God, make me more like you. On the night of which he's betrayed, Jesus stood with his closest friends, men that would betray him, not 24 hours later. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection power this morning to make us as a church full of his glory as a witness in our society. As I ask the communion servers to go to their stations, let me say a prayer of our elements and we'll close in worship. Lord God, thank you for this morning, for your scriptures, for how they move us and align us. Change us, Lord. Let us do a self-examination in our hearts. Let us root out places of discrimination or sexism. And Lord, let us be proclaiming your power and gospel message. Lord, that it's not, a, not anything about relevance or politics. It's about your glory, Jesus. That we would be Jesus' people, speaking your hope, obeying you, awesome worshiping you. Because you are the one that took us from people stuck in death and brought us alive. You brought us through the river, Lord. You allow us to experience your freedom. May we live from that place now. And all God's people said, amen.